Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. Joining us today on Miranda Warnings is our special guest, Ari Melber, host of The Beat with Ari Melber, which airs daily at 6 p.m. on MSNBC. Ari is also the NBC News Analyst and the MSNBC Chief Legal Correspondent. Welcome, Ari. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you here. We're very excited. Ari, you are a Cornell uh, Law School grad. You were a First Amendment lawyer. Why did you give up the glories of being a lawyer to host your own show on MSNBC? Well, I've actually enjoyed both uh, jobs. I was working for Floyd Abrams uh, and other partners at uh, Cahill, where I practiced for uh, about four years. But I, previous to that, had been writing uh, in the media for The Nation magazine and other places and had worked uh, a little bit in government and policy. So there was always two interests. And when an opportunity came up to join MSNBC full-time, basically hosting and also doing uh, legal and political analysis as a guest, I, I jumped at it as a fun thing and figured maybe I'll go back to practicing at some point later uh, as well. And uh, now you're host of The Beat uh, on MSNBC, and your show and you are recognized as being smart and funny, informed, and prepared, which is not always the case, I think, on news shows. How does your legal training uh, help your preparation as a journalist? In a word, evidence. There's more than one way to report the news, and I think we've seen a lot of uh, diversity and, and different styles emerge, especially, say, in the last... 10 to 15 years as the media has gone through many well-known evolutions, uh, but lawyers are steeped in evidence, and I think that's a different model than, say, a traditional political reporting model where you say campaign blue says X, campaign red says Y. That's both pieces of information. Add a little bit more to that, and that's considered a discussion. Sometimes that's relevant. Presidential debates are still moderated that way, and the public can make up their own mind, sort of unfiltered. Uh, but when you lead with evidence rather than just what both sides are saying, uh, as lawyers are, are so tra- taught to do, I think you can end up often with a fuller picture. Well, uh, and your show does have evidence. I mean, you're often referring to, I present to you Exhibit A and Exhibit B, and uh, when someone tries to dance around the issue, you actually present them. Uh, with the with the proof that you want to talk about, um, your questions are tough and pointed, but uh, you don't take cheap shots. Uh, and uh, sometimes it seems that the evidence you ha- that you have really does the talking for you. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, look, everyone has different styles. Uh, when you get down to interviewing, uh, I think uh, your listeners have, have either been engaged with or have, have heard certainly heard about uh, the different ways that the talent that lawyers might cross-examine someone or people think about, say, archetypes like Atticus Finch, uh, which is a model of a kind of thoughtful or benign cross-examination rather than trying to destroy someone. Uh, And I think that is also interesting because sometimes, at least in some of what we see in media interviews, the the fixation on spectacle or even aggression, um, which isn't always illuminating, Although, again, I'm speaking in generalizations. I can imagine the certain times where in a certain interview, 
You might have to be downright aggressive depending on the subject. Uh, or interviewing a convicted murderer might be different than interviewing uh, Malala. So, again, it depends. But, yes, I think there's a way to present evidence and work directly in an interview without being unduly harsh. Well, and you, you have uh, a lot of uh, guests. Uh, I'm not going to say witnesses on your show, but guests um, <laughs> who, you know, you might not agree with personally uh, of opposing points of view. Um, but there seems to be a trust level that they're, they're going to get a fair shake uh, on your show. And, you know, looking at it as a lawyer, you know, when a lawyer goes into a courtroom, they're a vigorous advocate, but they want to have the trust uh, of the judge, so that whatever they say, the tr- the judge can uh, accept and, and believe. And you seem very protective of the trust of your viewers. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's an apt observation, which is mixed with a compliment, so of course I welcome it, uh, but you're certainly onto something, because we think a lot about the choices we make and what our viewers are going to understand as our priorities and why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, it could be anything from deciding to feature someone because they are what we might call a fact witness uh, and and respecting our viewers enough to explain this person is here because they know about things that are at issue in an investigation or in the case of people close to Cohen and Manafort, they know about crimes. They're not here because we're pretending they're an expert and they're not here because we're just going to parrot every political view no matter its, its uh, credibility. Uh, and so that's a way that we, as you say, respect the viewers and explain what we're doing, um, which is different than saying, well, anything that is exciting or anyone who's been anywhere near politics, you know, can pull up a seat anytime and run their mouth. Uh, and so I give thought to that. And it's no secret that this is a competitive environment. Our ratings and our audience right now happen to be up. And I think that's great. Uh, but we certainly do things that I can tell are risks or may not maximize the quote-unquote ratings because we have other journalistic priorities. Or we have people on that are highly controversial, I get why they are, um, but I think it's good that we present and confront and fact-check their views, no matter how reviled they may be. A, A classic example being that Steve Bannon ran Donald Trump's campaign and served as a White House advisor, and he's only done a handful of big news interviews, uh, been on CNN once or twice, and he's only been on MSNBC in his entire career once, and that was in a big interview we did. And people still came at me for it, and I get it, I can take it, um, but I think it's worthwhile, and I think there has to be a requisite level of credibility uh, for him to even sit down with me. And then I still confronted him over things, and we went back and forth, and I think viewers are the, the more informed for it, or at least that's my hope. Yeah, and I, and I think it comes through. I, I, I note on your show oftentimes when you get done with a particularly vigorous, uh, I'm going to say, examination, um, oftentimes the, the guest will reach off and over and shake your hand. Uh, they feel like they've weathered the storm somehow. <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, that goes to why do we press people? I mean, do we press them just for drama or because we have to check a box? Uh, or is there some larger thought to it? And I'll share mine because I think, uh, as I understand it, your, your, your listeners and your conversation is going deeper than, than maybe some. You know, my, my, one of my philosophy points is if someone has exercised power, there's more logic to pressing them than, say, if someone's invited on for their expertise. So if we have an analyst on and they're there to give some, some basic views and informed ideas about the news, 
I don't feel as much of a need to press them, say, on their record or career unless it's really relevant to the segment, right? That sounds kind of obvious, but that's my thinking. When I had Andrew McCabe on, who I hold in respect, I think you and I know he's a, a talented law enforcement official, lawyer, rose to be acting FBI director, but also has exercised enormous power over people's lives, over criminal justice, civil rights issues, and over these uh, very controversial probes into the current president. I pressed him, for example, on the firing of James Comey, he was saying that, you know, there was this letter and Donald Trump wrote it and it made Trump look bad. And I asked him a question about it and he said, well, I can't really talk about what was in the letter. So I, that's all I can say. And I said, well, you know, someone who can, who has been talking about what's in the letter is Andrew McCabe. And we had a clip ready of him talking about it recently. Right. And then I pressed him further. It wasn't to make him look bad. It was probably farther than I would have gone with a random analyst, but it was to say, Hey, you ran the FBI you're using this fancy-sounding dodge when, in fact, when it served your interest, you were talking about this secret presidential letter, which, by the way, is still in Mueller's evidence file and we haven't seen, so it's super interesting. You know, so again, that explains, I, maybe at least, I could be wrong, I could get it wrong, but that's right. sort of somehow I prioritize the hierarchy of pressure, if you will. Well, and I, I think it's appreciated coming from a legal perspective, because when, you're, when you do a cross-examination, you don't know what the answer is going to be, and you've got about uh, 50 different documents in your, in your portfolio there that any of which you might pull, but you might not, uh, depending on what the answer is. And so, I mean, it seems like that you have that type of uh, evidence that you're ready to go. I mean, is, is a lot of this on the fly? So if you're going to, if you don't get the answer that you want, are you ready to pull something? Or is it already pre-planned that you're going to go with this regardless? Uh, well, a lot of the discussion has to be on the fly if you're dealing with people's answers. So... With right. there have been several Mueller witnesses we talked to, and we only know a little bit about what they've put out publicly. But if they start explaining, like Jerome Corsi did, that he thought Mueller prosecutor Janine Ree was impugning him by making a comment that he alleges was related to religion, I had no idea he was going to say that. So I have right. to deal with that in the moment. Uh, when you deal with people with voluminous public records, you know, then as any lawyer knows, you've got all of that material and you kind of prep to make decisions about what are you more or less likely to get into. And then if you want to have the corroboration stuff, yeah, you got to have it ready because you're going to be reading or referencing it in some way. So there's a, it's, a, it's a mix of all of the above. I would say, you know, again, for your for your listeners who, who are either lawyers or steeped in the law, that's a safe guess, right? Yes. <laughs> I think for, for, for all you guys out there listening, you know that you know, one of the big differences is there's less visibility for everything that's out of court in, in law. I mean, you can waste a certain amount of time in a deposition, and if you get where you want to go, you're good, right? right? I mean, it's like, especially if you're dealing with a difficult witness, then they want to waste your time, fine. You kind of keep going. Uh, that's a, one thing that I find challenging here is most of these interviews are obviously live on the national news. So they might be six minutes, or they might be ten minutes, or when I had Ken Starr on, we set aside about twenty minutes, which is long, but it's still not a four-hour deposition. So I gotta, I gotta go with it, keep going, and right, and get it done, and that's challenging. And you're you're allowed to lead the witness, though, right? So <laughs> no objections, and they don't have counsel in the interview. It's uh, it's reasonable, you know. So you know, I want to talk a little bit about just the state of uh, the media in general. Now, I'm gonna uh, let's take your show aside, but we're seeing that 
the type of evidence and preparation that you're putting into uh, your show it takes a lot of time, and it's not always the most salacious type of presentation, and sometimes it can be a little thick and a little deep. Um, and we're seeing, you know, uh, both on the left and the right, that there's seeking the most salacious facts, not even the most important ones, but just the ones that are going to make the news, the news cycle for the next 24 hours. And it seems like that is a real problem for us, for our country, when uh, we are having our news given to us that's really just, you know, reaffirming what our, our predispositions might be already. I think that's a huge challenge, uh, particularly in a time where you have a polarized political environment and a president who so many people view as a direct affront to their values or even their liberty, while at the same time, uh, that doesn't mean that all of his supporters should be lumped together or that a disagreement on one issue should predominate the respect or the facts that we bring to every other story. Uh, and so what you're talking about, obviously, is the is the link between the role of the press in journalism and the functioning of a democracy. And in any constitutional law course, you know, you, you, you spend a long time working through those issues. Technology has accelerated all of this. So we have the ability of more people to speak up, even if they don't have a lot of money, power, or connections through the Internet. And I think the founders would be thrilled with that, or at least most of them. <laughs> but on the flip side, the the way that lies and attacks and bad faith actors can exploit and accelerate that has been well demonstrated. And so I think it's really difficult. And then we're working in a media environment where, look, it is both probably a challenge, meaning a con, and a strength, meaning a pro, that I've come into the media at this time with other background experience. Because I do think some people in the media are so initially threatened by the role of the internet or what's coming in that it all gets lumped together negatively. Or if burned by it, they overreact to it. So you have all these reporters talking to each other on Twitter and overreacting to the president on Twitter. And there's this whole conversation on Twitter that's not real life. Because if you go into the average workplace or diner or coffee shop, regular people, whatever their beliefs, may not be obsessed with Twitter or Donald Trump's tweets anyway. So it's a long answer to the fact that I think those are a lot of challenges that are certainly intensified if the media is rewarded by or reacting to uh, sensational stuff. And so you can you can pluck an opinion or a fact and have it go viral in a way that everyone's reacting to, and it may not be the whole story. Well, it's not the whole story, and you know it's very concerning because. Um, obviously, the media has to have viewers and listeners in order to uh, survive. But we have some very serious policy issues that are, I don't think are getting the same amount of coverage as, as a tweet. And, uh, you know, when it's one thing to have a Twitter account uh, like the president does, uh, where, you know, half of his followers, I think, appear to be bots. Uh, but it's another thing that whenever that tweet goes out, 
uh, it's covered in you know the mainstream news, and that, as you know, I mean, you you allocate your time very carefully. The the one hour that you have, the news uh, time that people get is uh, precious, and a lot of it is being wasted on this kind of salacious stuff. I mean, I, if you you think about you know if you leave it up to your kids, they'll eat you know candy every night for dinner. They need some vegetables and they need some meat. And, you know, for the most part, I feel like the media is succumbing to, you know, the lowest common denominator here. And that's not good for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge challenge. And the sort of the, the cumulative effects of that are also great. It's like if you work at Walmart, you have your own idea of how you want to do your job. And then you have the grinding pressure of the way the place runs each day. If you work at a law firm, you have your ideas about what would be the best approach to the case and your time management, and then you have all the pressures of billable hours and your bosses and the client and the world you live in. And so when you work in the media, I think you do have a higher obligation. I don't think it's just a check-in, check-out job, although I think people, many people feel that way about their jobs and the dignity they bring to them. But you're also under the pressures of the hour before and after and the pressures of all of that. Um, so we think about that. I mean, one of the things we do just to be specific is, you know, I try to set aside time to prioritize certain topics and interviews and protect that no matter what the news is, meaning breaking news or something that changes will still affect the hour, but we've committed to a big interview or we tape an interview and we'll air it. If not that day, the next, that's a commitment, which is different than bumping things. Cause you know, the, sometimes the most important things in the news will be the first things to get bumped. Right. Now you've covered a lot of obviously the 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 Mueller uh, case and the the Mueller uh, report, uh, uh, work that they've done. W- let me ask you. I mean, news goes based upon you know leaks and reporting. Um, Mueller has been so disciplined in not providing any leaks, any comments other than what's going on uh, in the court. Have you ever seen anything that's been as disciplined as how? Uh, the Mueller team has conducted themselves? I think it's very rare. Uh, It's also inherently a paradoxical question because the more secret something is, the less I'd even be able to reference it, right? I think there are certainly, you know, programs that have been later exposed that we know were functioning at a government level very secretively. For example, when the post-9-11 warrantless uh, wiretapping program was leaked, we then learned that for years it had been operating on a need-to-know basis where the DOJ itself and many other folks that usually would be read in were not, and it certainly hadn't leaked. So I'm sure we could come up with a longer list if we expand beyond just, you know, right. federal investigations. And I think some of the counter-intel stuff or invest, I'm sure that there, you know, I'm sure there are former prosecutors listening who know that they investigated cases and closed them out, you know, with a declination, and it never leaked that someone was under investigation, which can be a fair and proper way. So I don't want to I don't want to over dramatize Mueller's secrecy. I think it is unusual, shall we say, in probes of this magnitude that touch on politics, and it's certainly different than his predecessors. Uh, if you lump in like Ken Starr, the Watergate prosecutors were out. I mean, Jaworski was out giving press conferences. Uh, Archibald Cox gave a very famous press conference. On the flip side, um, again, I'm giving a long answer to try to get do justice to the the issues you raise. You know, Pat Fitzgerald ran a pretty pretty tight probe of the Libby Scooter Libby uh, leak case uh, about the, the leaking of the uh, Valerie Plame's name as a CIA operative. You know, 
and retribution for her husband's criticism of, of Dick Cheney, effectively. I'm simplifying, but people right. remember. Um, so some cases are pretty pretty secretive. But no, I think Mueller is certainly, I would guess, well above 90 percentile in the, in the secrecy and the professionalism. And I make contact with his office, obviously, as part of due diligence. And it is never a very long or informative conversation. What do you what you know? The, we're expecting the Mueller report. What do you think of this uh, line of thinking that you know we've been seeing various chapters of the Mueller report all along, in what amounts to uh, you know narrative indictments that contain m- many more facts than might necessarily be required. So that if you combine all the indictments and and filings that we've had already, you know you've, you've got a pretty lengthy report. Uh, already. Uh, what's your thought on that? Well, I think that Mueller report has become a shorthand for the end of the probe. Um, lawyers will appreciate that most uh, federal cases don't end in a report, certainly not a public one. And what I refer to more, more commonly these days is Mueller's findings, which is to say when it's done, we'll know what he's, what he's found publicly through his indictments and cases. Plus, he has his findings that he'll submit to the AG. And under the rules, those can include some explanation of the people he didn't charge, as well as any times that he and his supervisors at any point in the process, from Rosenstein to Barr, uh, including Whitaker, uh, and he disagreed over a major item. And we do know those will be transmitted under the rules uh, to the Congress, which means in this environment, effectively, they'll be public and Congress has voted to say it wants most of this public. So the findings should come through in some way regarding if they disagreed and if he if he does want to narratively summarize who he didn't charge for whatever reason, and there may be good reasons, counter and tell, the president himself who traditionally is not understood to be chargeable, there might be good reasons why some of that is submitted to bar and ultimately somehow publicized, released. Um, but that's, I think, what we're talking about. When we think back to, you know, Star or the Iran-Contra report, both were hundreds of pages because of the nature of their appointments and the rules at the time. And that's no longer the case, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know. So I think we're really talking about that narrower thing. And, you know, if there's no further indictments after Roger Stone, and there's no great discussion of the president, then I don't expect that Mueller would have a ton of other material that he'd be releasing. Right. Well, uh, Ari, you've indicated that uh, pop culture and politics now have become linked, and that's been kind of a theme a little bit on your show where you make uh, some pop culture references to politics, specifically uh, with respect to hip-hop lyrics. It's, I know it's a, it's a passion of yours. Um, and there's a case out there that I think brings together all your passions. It's the <laughs> Jamal Knox case that's uh, up at the Supreme Court. It's got elements of, obviously, of criminal justice, First Amendment, and uh, hip-hop. And I'm, I really want to hear your thoughts about this case. Um, and uh, what you think about what it what the case means and and how important it is to you? Yeah, I mean this is this is a case that really cuts back into a long-standing discussion about where you draw the line on true threats and admissible evidence uh, when someone is speaking in a manner that is not literal, meaning they're not 
you know, addressing someone right before they get into a fight, but rather speaking as the famous Supreme Court president. They could be speaking about the draft at a rally, or they could be speaking in music or art or burning a flag. I mean, we get into all of these other types of expression, and this case is about that in the context of rap lyrics. Uh, I'll ask you, did you ever see the the Key and Peele skit, the old uh, comedy show about a... Um, about a, rap, a rapper's lyrics in a, in this kind of situation. No. no, I didn't see that one. It's very funny, and people, I'm sure, remember, uh, you know, how uh, Key and Peele went on. One of them went on to make Get Out, which was the big, right. big hit film, and their old sketch. They had a sketch that basically captures, uh, at least I think, the nub of the legal issue here was it starts out featuring a rapper uh, saying that, you know, his lyrics are being misinterpreted because they're being treated as a confession when they're just, quote-unquote, you know, tough talking, gangster fiction, rap. Right. And then as the skit goes on, the, basically the DA or the police is like playing the the record and it becomes a very, very specific confession. Right. <laughs> and it makes fun of the idea that you could hide behind the music. And I think that, uh, which is a funny skit if anyone wants to look it up later, I think that goes to this case because anyone who cares about free speech and defendants' rights uh, is going to, I think, look skeptically at an attempt to use music, culture, fiction against someone. The classic analogy being if if uh, Sean Connery is on trial for murder, most of the James Bond movies are not going to be admissible, even though he holds a gun and you could make whatever arguments you want to make. It's right. widely understood as fiction. And music is fiction, and rappers uh, feel often that they're cast in a double standard when suddenly they don't get the James Bond defense. It's not fair. This case, uh, from what I understand about it, does have names and specifics that may cut against that argument, meaning it reads more like the argument that the song is autobiographical or specific and not uh, James Bond. And so I think that's why this is probably a closer call. Uh, But I'm generally very skeptical of prosecutorial efforts to use people's fictional cultural work against them in court. Right, and the, the facts of this case is Jamal Knox was arrested on a variety of gun and drug charges uh, and then later uh, did a, a, a song that actually named the officers uh, who conducted the arrest and made some other uh, what were uh, perceived as uh, threats in the song. And so the question goes, uh, to whether they're taking a persona in the song um, or this is an actual threat that's um, just put to music. Uh, right, and if it was done in a movie with famous actors who were more embraced by the establishment, would it get a different treatment? I mean, the law has to have standards, and when fairly applied, those standards should work regardless of the identities. I mean, that's the fundamental position of equality before the law, and yet we all know how much that seems to fail, particularly on when matters of race are involved. And so I think that's the test. Having said that, you know, you could say in the famous Supreme Court threats case that you know, a statement about, L- I believe, about LBJ sounds pretty specific because it's LBJ, right? but it's countless political speech. So is a statement about officers, if it's broad enough not about threatening an individual officer, but about your right to criticize police conduct, which is a fundamental right the founders were interested in, and that libertarians and conservatives have long said they're interested in in protecting. Or does it become, as I said, so specific, the key and peel joke being the breaking point, that you say, well, wait a minute, 
uh, movie or not, this looks like a very specific threat. Right, and you know, what was interesting about this case is that uh, several uh, famous uh, hip-hop artists have uh, submitted an amicus brief uh, to the court uh, talking about the history of, uh, of hip-hop and, and the expression, uh, the artistic pr expression that it provides. And I'll have to say, I know I learned that the first rule of hip-hop is you have to keep it real. And uh, by keeping it real, I'm going to say all of my knowledge of hip-hop, I think, comes from this case and your show. Uh, <laughs> well, so. good. It's very good to keep it real. Uh, they also say keep it 100. You know, you got to be yourself 100% of the time if you can. So, no, I'm not, not suggesting that you're, uh, <laughs> you're claiming more knowledge than you have. But I, I think they're fascinating issues. And, yeah, I mean, NWA had the song F the Police. And criticism of the police, again, is a big part of... Uh, of American society and civil rights history uh, and Black Lives Matter and other activism to this day. So I think it's all infused in that. The, the Having the rappers submit that is, is really interesting as a way to try to join in the formal legal process so they're not just, you know, on the outside criticizing, they're also on the inside. And Meek Mill is someone you mentioned who recently had his incarceration overturned uh, because it was seen as so extreme. He's a very successful musician uh, who was incarcerated on what many, what the court ultimately found, I should say, were excessive, excessive attempts to punish him for a probation violation because he was riding a motorbike, popping wheelies when shooting a music video in New York. Again, something that, well, what if he was on a movie set and Tom Cruise popped a wheelie? Would that get him incarcerated? Uh, it was a uh, quite a case. And so you mentioned Meek Mill. That's a particularly interesting person to be on the brief. Well, yeah. And the brief is, you know, they talk about the fact that uh, these, this, this is a persona, just as you stated, just like someone who plays a character in a movie. Um, and they talk about, uh, you know, Ice-T defended themselves uh, as being just fed up with pr police brutality, not necessarily being a cop killer. And he said, if you believe that I'm a cop killer, you also believe that David Bowie is an astronaut. Um, right, and right. and so these are our personas, and so the issue is going to be whether uh, that's going to be something that's uh, accepted or not um, by the Supreme Court. So very interesting, Ari. Uh, it's been wonderful having you here on uh, Miranda Warnings. We have a feature; it's not uh, hip hop references, but it could be called Music Book or Movie, where we ask our, our guests uh, to talk about uh, anything that uh, any performance that. Uh, might inform our listeners, and that's important to you. Uh, well, I'm reading A Man in Full by Tom Wolfe right now, so that's that's sort of on my nightstand. Um, in terms of, of groups to see, I mean, there's an, a group performing in, in New York at the Blue Note on an extended run right now that I love that I would shout out, or you could look them up online, which is Phony PPL, P-H-O-N-Y-P-P-L. And they're really interesting as kind of a fusion of jazz, R&B, and hip-hop elements. Um, so if anyone's looking for some new music, I think, or wants to see them, I think they're a great group to check out. Uh, yeah. Great. Okay, so Phony PPL, that's uh, that's very specific, and that's that's great. Ari Melber, it's been wonderful having you here on Miranda Warnings. Good luck with uh, the continued success of your show, The Beat with Ari Melber, on MSNBC at 6 p.m. Hey, David, thanks to you and your listeners. Thank you very much, Eric. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal, 
and some that aren't. 